So I want us, as we, as we talked and, and or even praying, it was so encouraging to my heart to hear how we just prayed. And you guys referenced James sometimes and spoke about James. And we prayed very differently about James this morning than we did the first time when we read James through as a body. And we, we read through James and we prayed, and, but even your perspective on some of the verses, on some of what that James' intention was and what it means to go through difficulties and trials. As I hear you guys pray, I hear that your minds have changed in many ways. And that's encouraging to, to hear. And I think that God is using this and God wants to transform our, our minds, but He wants to transform our hearts and transform our lives. And I know I say each week, this is important. <laughs> as I prepared this week and the several weeks before as we did sermon prep, and I shared with Grace last night, I think I've spent more time considering and thinking about this and struggling with this um, as much as I have with any message that I've taught. And as I read through this, I think this is something that we miss over and over again. We gloss through. And I truly, I think it's at the heart of God and it's at the heart of the gospel. And I think that we need to repent. I've had to repent myself as this is things that I thought I understood, I thought that I knew, I thought that I've studied. And yet as I go through it anew and afresh in God's Word, He's just broken me. And it's not me preaching to you, it's me preaching to myself. It's me preaching to us as a body. And so this is, this is serious stuff. And as we go through these next couple weeks and in this section of Scripture, I just want us to be ready to receive and humble. Um, letting go of what you thought you knew. And just allow God's Word to speak to us, allow us to hear from God's Word that we might be doers of His Word, as we just talked about. And so it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the book of James. But James, James's focus is on faith. It's not on works, it's on faith. It's on a living faith. And this idea, as we've talked about and we've prayed about, this faith that would sustain us through trials. And as we have this faith, God builds up this endurance in us, this steadfastness. And we do that because of what God has done for us, what He's doing for us, and what He promises He will do for us. And we continue on towards that prize that He promises to give us. And our faith is not a feeling, it's not in... Something somebody's told us is not in. I woke up and I had my vitamins and I feel pretty good today, so I'm going to have faith. Uh, our faith is in the Word of God. That we would believe the Word of God and that regardless of the situa- situation, regardless of what's going on, regardless of how I feel, because day to day I don't feel very great all the time. You can ask my wife. It can be like a roller coaster if I would base my life on my feelings. But God wants us to base it on our faith. We would believe His Word and we'd act upon it. And I know in, the, in our culture, faith is, a, we think of it as an invisible thing. I was even, as I drove through the valley this week, there's a sign on one of the churches and it says, uh, faith is belief in the unseen. And I know what they're talking about. I know what they mean. But it's just such a small picture of faith. And I think that's what we focused on. And I know that comes from Hebrews 11.1. Actually, let me do this. Let me go back and read the passage first. 
and says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so again, this is about faith. It's about a demonstration of faith. And as I was talking, that we see faith as something invisible. And as I mentioned the sign, I know that it's from Hebrews 11, which is the next slide, that says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that sign in and of itself is true. But as you look before this verse and after this verse and you understand the context of this passage, the author of Hebrews starts to go through and demonstrates that faith results in action. And we've taken it out of context. And the world thinks, and we think a lot of times in the church, that faith is just what I believe, it's what I profess. And the world thinks, they claim one thing, but they live out another way. But authentic faith results in actions. And as we see in this Hebrews 11 passage, just after that, he says, By faith Noah heard from God, and then Noah responded and built an ark. By faith Abraham heard from God, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith Abraham heard from God, and then he was ready to sacrifice his son. By faith, Moses heard from God and he decided to leave Egypt. He decided to leave behind his position and with Pharaoh. By faith, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. And so as you see in these passages right after that, they have this faith of the things unseen or the things that they hope for, but yet that faith leads them to action. It's not secret or hidden. It's living faith. It's tangible, it's visible, and it's demonstrated. You can see when someone has faith. And as we'll see in this passage, you can also see when someone doesn't have faith. And so James is sharing these marks of faith. What does it look like? What will our lives look like if we have faith? He wants to show what our attitudes will be like and what our actions will be like. And before we go to chapter 2, we need to look back where we just came from in verse, or chapter 1, verse 27. Because I think it's in connection. We decided to put a chapter and call this the next chapter, but it's the verse right before. And I think it's really connected with this entire section. In chapter 1, verse 27, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's to truly walk with 
the vulnerable, to walk with the poor, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, to not just go minister to them, but actually walk with them, to have relationship with them, to receive from them and to give from them, to be a, an interdependent relationship. And then to keep ourselves unstained from the world. That as we do that, we live righteous lives. We live before God in a way that honors Him. We're to do both. We're to be, remember, sinless friend of sinners. We're to be in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't separate ourselves. We don't go into our closet and be righteous before God. We do it as we're out, as we're loving on our neighbor, as we're loving on the world. So this in James 1.27 is truly what a doer of the word looks like. What faith lived out looks like. And now as we start in chapter 2, James is going to describe what it doesn't look like. And I think sometimes it's easier to explain what something is by explaining what it's not. And faith, as we'll see in this passage, faith is not partial. And partial, I think, is an old word. We don't use it that much. My grandmother might have used it. But as you look at that and you understand the definition, as you look at the original text, my translation in the Brit Fuller version would be prejudice. And our faith is not prejudice. So let me give you an exact definition. It says that partiality or prejudice is a biased judgment based on external circumstances based on the outside, not on the inside, for things such as rank, or wealth, or race, anything that disregards the intrinsic merit of a person. So we're prejudiced when we look at the outside and we make judgments, particularly about what's on the inside. So partiality equals prejudice. And prejudice or partiality in action is discrimination. So if I'm prejudiced and I act on my prejudice, then I discriminate. And as you sit here, you might be a little uncomfortable. And after you get over being a little uncomfortable, you're probably like, well, I'm glad because that doesn't, that's not talking about me. I'm not prejudiced. But I can think of someone who's prejudiced. And I wish they were here to hear this message. And I would want to correct you, as I've corrected myself. I can guarantee you that every one of us sitting in this room is prejudiced. And this message is for us. This message is for me. This message is for you. And God wants to speak to us through this. And so I want us to get over talking about something that's not really comfortable to talk about and realize that God is talking to us. And so as we go through this passage, James is going to explain why we're not to be prejudiced. And as I read through this, I was just amazed that this is the kind of God that we have. That he could say, don't be prejudiced in your faith. And he could give us that command, and he could stop right there. He doesn't have to explain himself. He doesn't have to, to talk to us so that we can understand. He could just say it, do it, because I'm your Father. I'm the Heavenly Father. I created this earth. Now do it. I don't care if you understand. Do it. 
But God's not a parent like that. He's not like, sometimes when I get so frustrated with my kids, I'm like, I'm tired of explaining. I'm tired of trying to get you to understand. Just do it because I'm your dad and I told you to do it. And that happens every once in a while. But God doesn't treat us that way. And so as we go through this, realize that we're hearing from a loving Father that wants us to understand. James gives us illustrations and it says, therefore, and understand this, and I'm going to tell you that so that you can understand why you need to not be partial in your faith. So the first piece is that prejudice denies faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And this literally means he wants us to stop all demonstrations of all forms of prejudice. All demonstrations, not sometimes, not most of the time, all the time, he wants us to stop. And he wants us to stop showing all types of prejudice, all forms of it. He'll go into, and James will give this description of the poor, but as you look at this and understand this, it really has a, a bigger meaning than just the poor. But that's a large and a huge part of it, and we'll talk more about that. And as you look at where this word occurs other times in Scripture, it's always around the poor, or it's usually around ethnicity, around backgrounds, whether they were a Jew, whether they were a Gentile. For us, whether we're black, white, Hispanic, that we would not have prejudice based on those external descriptors, based on those distinctions. And so as you guys might have been thinking, well, this doesn't really apply to me. James knew his audience as well, and he gives them an illustration. In verse 2 through 4, he says, he gives this example of a, a rich man and a poor man coming in to their assembly, to where they're gathered, to where the body is, and how they responded. And this is a hypothetical situation, but it's something that they would have understood, something would have been normal for them. And it would have hit home. It would have struck their conscience. And he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and literally it means a man with a hand full of gold rings, not with one ring or two rings, it means on his left hand, because the right hand in that time was used for something else, so they kept the one hand, they would put gold ring after gold ring, and it showed status, and it showed class, that they were someone. And the more rings you had, the higher rank you were. And it was something that was very visible. It was something that everyone saw. And you know how we go, and if you're going to go to a formal, or if you're going to go to a dance or uh, something at work, you rent a tux. You want to look your best. I don't own a tux. If I have to go to something like that, I have to rent a tux. And they even had in those times in the first century where you could rent gold rings. You could rent gold rings where you could add them to your hand that you could show up for this place. I mean, I'm somebody. I've got position. I've got power, I've got influence, look at my hand look at the gold rings on my hand and so this man walks in and then it says continuing on in verse 3 or verse 2 and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in so here's one man full of, with a handful of gold rings with the finest clothing and here comes another man with shabby clothing it literally means that this man had probably been out in the field. It was probably a laborer. He had one outfit. He didn't have a closet full of clothes. He would have come in with what he was wearing. He would have stunk. He would have smelled. He would have been dirty. 
and a complete contrast from this rich man, clean and with gold rings on his hand. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. You sit here on our, on our sofa in the sanctuary. Relax, kick back. I'll give you the seat of honor. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Literally, you stand in the corner. Or you sit at my feet. It's as if we're saying, I'm sitting in a chair, my feet are up on the footstool, and I want you actually to sit down below my feet. It was figurative, it's what he's talking about, but, but you understand, like, you're so far below me, sit below my feet. And so this would have struck a chord with James's audience. They would have understood this. Because they knew that their God, they had been instructed that their God did not show partiality. He was not a prejudiced God. He wanted them to understand and admit that they were still making social distinctions when their faith called them not to make distinctions. They, they, knew, they knew it, they believed it, they professed it, but they were still demonstrating something else. And our faith is in a God who is not partial. In Romans 2, verse 11, in verse 11 it says, God shows no partiality. But if you look around this, in verse 10 and verse 12, it describes that He really shows no partiality in His grace, and He shows no partiality in His judgment. The grace is available to all, to the Jew and to the Greek. There's no partiality with God, and yet He's going to judge us based on our response to His grace, based on if we do good or not. It's based on intrinsic, it's based on how we've responded to Him. Not on anything else that we've done, not on who we are, not on our place or position in society, not on the color of our skin, but based on who we are with Him. And so we must be ready as a body to admit that we're prejudiced. And that's hard. I've asked a few people this week, like, do you think that you're prejudiced? And there's a pause and there's a deep breath and... Well, I know I am, but I can't really think of a way I am, but I know I am, but, yeah, but oh man, I really don't want to be. And there's kind of squirming and moving. And, and it's always easier for us to see it in other people. It's always easier for us to see it as it happens in, in our culture. But I will tell you, as I've always been told, if you want to understand prejudice or privilege, don't ask someone who has it. You need to ask someone who is being prejudiced against, who's receiving the prejudice. And I asked Larry to be able to share this story. And as I have had a relationship with Larry, I've seen the world through a different perspective as I have walked with him places, as we have gone places. And the reception that he's gotten, the looks that we've gotten, he and I together, but then the looks that he gets by himself. And when he came to California six weeks ago, the first thing he did, we were gonna, he had some money and we were going to open a, a checking account. And I asked him to go to the bank to figure out if he could open an account and see what information he needed. And they told him he couldn't open an account. He had his Minnesota ID, he had his birth certificate, his social security card, he had all of his information. But they said, well, you need a California ID. 
So the next day he went and he got his California ID and he had the slip. The picture hadn't come yet, but he had the slip for the proof. The, the, the police accepted, right? And he had his Minnesota ID and his birth certificate and his social security card, all those pieces. And he goes back to the bank and Mark goes with him. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, you've got your California ID, but it needs to be the California picture ID. Even though he had a Minnesota picture ID and all this other information. And he let me know about this and I got angry. <laughs> I said, tomorrow we're going together. And I told her as we went in, I said, I'm either going to be really upset that I walk in there with you and they give you a checking account because I'm with you, or I'm going to be really, really upset if they don't give us one. I'd just rather be upset at them. But we walked into the bank. And so my antennas were up. I was, you know, what's going on here? And as we walked in, people turned to look. They're used to seeing white people. They're used to seeing Hispanic people. They're not used to seeing an African-American guy. And they're not used to seeing him with a white guy. And I'm coming from work and I have my tie on. And people are just kind of gawking at us. And we wait. And they take us to a desk. And the gentleman talks to me the entire time. He won't look at Larry. He says, what, what, what would you like today, sir? I'm like, no, he's opening an account. He says, well, do you have ID? I said, yeah, we've been here the last two days with ID. I says, today we have enough ID. We're going to open an account. He has everything he needs. And the guy kind of fumbles, the guy kind of looks, and then the guy says, struggling. I said, do you want to open that with, we can do it in, in accordance with my personal account, with my business account, but he's going to open an account. And he says, yes, sir, here we go. And I was relieved he was going to open an account, but I was so frustrated knowing that the only reason that he was going to open an account is because Larry walked in there with me. That if Larry would have walked in there again, he wouldn't have opened an account for him again. And those are things that I don't experience every day. I don't have those interactions. People don't treat me that way. And then I realize that as I've gone through this passage, that we do that sometimes unintentionally. We do it without thinking. And that's a, an example but hopefully it's something that we can understand. Just as James shared this example, this is something that can strike home. Larry's in our body. He's part of us. And as the body is treated, so are we treated. And as one of us treats, so the body treats. And then we need to be aware of that and we need to be responsible for that. And I think we've put ourselves out there because our vision statement even says we're going to be a multi-ethnic multi-class, multilingual, gospel-centered community. Like, we're claiming it. It's at the front. It's on our, on our homepage, you know, and you click on the video and we're going to talk about it. It's right out there. We're stating this and making this a focus. If we show prejudice, if we don't address it in ourselves, how much more hypocritical will we look? And so what ways do you demonstrate prejudice? In what ways do we as a body, do we as living songs, demonstrate prejudice? We've got to ask ourselves that question. So prejudice denies our faith in Jesus Christ. And as you see in verse 4, it also demonstrates an evil heart. And we all know that the worst distinctions, the worst prejudice, are the ones that people can't do anything about. It's not about choices they've made. It's not about 
lifestyles they're living, it's about just who they are. And our culture understands this. And if you're in the workplace and you've ever hired someone and you've gone through HR training, you know that there are laws in place where we have to be non-discriminatory in our hiring. The state of California understands this. This is off the state of California's website. It says, the department complies with all state and federal laws that give employees the right to work in an environment free from discrimination and forbids discrimination based on non-job related factors such as race, color, religious creed, national origin, age, sex, including sexual harassment, pregnancy, childbirth, a related medical condition, physical and mental disability, religion, ancestry, political affiliation, marital status, medical condition, sexual orientation, gender identity, and Vietnam-era veteran status. And I'm just like, does the world get it and we don't? Because we make distinctions amongst ourselves. And we make distinctions amongst who deserves the gospel. Who can I, who can I love and who should I share the gospel with? We make those distinctions and decide in ourselves how comfortable we are sharing the gospel. We want to decide who's more deserving of grace. And you know if you understand grace, that's upside down. That doesn't make sense. But we make these distinctions outside the body. And I would say that we share the gospel many times based on influence and based on status. When we, my wife and I, when we were talking about next steps in ministry about planting a church I was told by more than one place that they would support us that they were behind us to plant a church but we needed to go not where our heart was not, not to live amongst and to be in a neighborhood of need but to go to the middle class or go to the rich and once you establish yourself there then you can minister down and that might sound terrible for me to say but that's a general strategy that the church believes. Then we need to go to those with resources. And if we get those with resources, then we can do the ministry to the poor. And our only resource is Jesus Christ. Our only resource is the gospel. And we need to believe that. And so I'm like, why don't we believe that? And I think sometimes it's easier. If I'm middle class, I want to minister to the middle class because I'd really like to keep my middle classness. <laughs> and so as we minister to the poor, are we willing to, to embrace the poor? Because as we do that, we're going to develop relationships. And as we develop relationships, we're going to get close. And as we're close, as times, it's going to be uncomfortable. And we base our, we base our sharing of the gospel on our own comfort. Am I willing to walk with this person? To be in relationship with this person? And I've prayed through this about what to share and how to share. And it came up in our sermon prep time. And I've been praying through it and considering. But our neighbors here in this very building, 
We haven't talked about it out loud. We haven't made an announcement. There's no need for an announcement. Um, but as folks learn that our neighbors, that the rest of this building is an adult film studio. And the general perspective that I've heard as people has approached me, I said, Britt, 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 you know, you know who's next door? You, yeah. We knew when we took the space. Oh, we need to pray. We need to pray, Britt. Yeah, we need to pray. So we need to pray that God would put them out of business or make them leave. And I said, well, <laughs> I think we need to pray. But first, I think we need to pray that God would transform their hearts. And after we get done praying that God would transform their hearts, we need to, get, we need to pray that God would transform our hearts. That we would not demonstrate prejudice against them in that sense. We would not make judgments because we're uncomfortable with that. That we say, I'm not going to interact with you. I'm not going to share the gospel with you because I'm uncomfortable with what you're doing. We need to pray that God would show us what does it look like to have a relationship with our neighbors next door? In what ways can we interact with them? In what ways can we love them? In what ways can we share the gospel and demonstrate the gospel? That God would show us that. That God would make an opportunity for that. That we would be able to engage and that we wouldn't make a distinction and say we're not going to share the gospel with them. We're not going to love on them because of what we decided how bad the thing is that they're doing. So that's externally. But internally, we make distinctions also. We talk about oneness, but I think we're truly a divided oneness. For sure, in the church as a whole, in the church in the United States, as I've talked to you guys and you've heard, that 95% of the churches have a majority group of one ethnicity. In a majority group, which means at least 80%. Much of them are more. And then as you look at those churches, of those that are a majority group, a lot of those are divided by class. You have a poor Hispanic church or a, or a, a, a middle-class white church. You have a, they're, they're based on not just ethnicity, but on class as well. And our usual response is, I understand theologically, I understand according to Scripture, yes, I know we are one, but that's not how my life lives out. That's not very practical. But just like on the outside, we forfeit our oneness because of influence and because of status. Within the body, within churches, we say, I want to be connected with people that are like me that are educated like me, that are knowledgeable like me, that have a good handling of the word like me. And you say, well, we wouldn't do that. But if Francis Chan walked in right now, we would all respond differently than if our neighbor in the, neighbor, our neighbor in the neighborhood walked in. And I don't know Francis. He heard we were coming, so he left. I got, I got to shake his hand once. But think about that. And think about even our relationships in the body. Our relationships in Livingstone and who you naturally 
flock to or have an affinity to or look to on a Sunday morning to have a conversation with? Do you want to look to somebody that, okay, I can talk to them about things on my level or things that are common with me? Or do we engage across that? Do we look to live our lives outside of Sunday morning across those boundaries? We also forfeit our oneness in Christ based on our comfort with others. As I said, I want to do life. I want to do discipleship with someone new who's the most like me. That last week, even as I talked about discipleship and I talked about these relationships that we were going to move forward in, these one-to-one, I don't think any of you can tell me, like, oh no, who am I going to get? And you laugh because it's true, right? We, oh, oh, I hope I get somebody that I can relate to. I hope I get somebody that I have things in common with, that has a similar life stage or has a similar experience or has the same background, or I'd prefer to speak English. I hope they prefer to speak English. And what's, what's this going to look like? And we have everything in common that we need to be in relationship with each other. No matter what our background, no matter what we look like on the outside, no matter what our experience, if we are together in Christ, then we share everything. That's all that we need to have relationship with each other. That's all we need to do life together. But we tend to elevate these other things. And we start to make distinctions based on them. And when we do that, it's contrary to grace, as we talked about, and it's contrary to oneness in Christ. As we consider grace and we start to decide who deserves it, we need to think about ourselves. And that if God saved you, He can save anybody. So look at verse or Ephesians 2.8. You have to skip two slides, John. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It wasn't because of who you were. It wasn't because of what you deserved. It wasn't because of your standing. It was a gift. It was because of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. If we make distinctions inside the body, we're not, we don't realize that we're all in Christ. In Galatians 3, 26-28, we taught this a few months ago. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no ethnic background. There's neither slave nor free. The class doesn't matter. There's neither male or female. Your, your, physical, your, your physical demonstration doesn't matter. Anything that society makes as a distinction, it doesn't matter in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're one. And so we have to be willing to see that outside the body and then also inside the body because we make distinctions in both. So prejudice denies faith in Jesus Christ and it demonstrates an evil heart. And in verse 5 through 7, we'll see that prejudice also dishonors God. And I'll talk through this piece quickly because... As I struggle through this, I realize we need to spend probably at least, we need to spend more, but we're going to spend at least a Sunday talking about God's heart for the poor. 
And as I studied through this, and I'm like, I feel like I've got to talk more about this. I feel like I've got to explain more about this. And why doesn't James go into more detail? Why doesn't he expound on the poor? And I realized he's talking to first century Jews who were now following Jesus Christ. That they knew God and they knew the Old Testament. They knew and understand that God had a heart for the poor and the immigrant and the stranger and the widow. They understood that God was a God of justice. And we're removed from that in a sense. We don't think of that. We're thinking God is a God that saves me. <laughs> and that's true, but He's a God of both. And so we'll take a week to really focus on this so as we go through these passages, we can have a right understanding of God's heart towards the poor so that when we read these verses, we'll understand them better. We'll understand them in context as James' audience would have understood them. But just briefly, God honors the poor. He has a heart for the poor. We know that blessed are the poor, that Christ came to proclaim good news to the poor. God hates those who oppress the poor, and He loves those who care for the poor. And God identifies the issues in Scripture, not with the poor, but with those who are against the poor. That's what we see repeatedly over and over. As you look at Malachi 3.5, God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. And notice this list that's just separated by commas that God lists out. What He's going to judge against. What He's going to be a witness against. Against sorcerers. Against the adulterers. Against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. Who oppress the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner which is the stranger or the immigrant, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God makes no distinction between adulterers, between thieves, between liars, between sorcerers, and those who oppress the poor. He's going to judge them all. And he says, James tells us, we dishonor the poor. This church... And the dispersion that he was writing to, they dishonored the poor. That we, living stones, dishonor the poor. Prejudice is not reflective of God. And I keep thinking, why then do we do it? Why do we continue to act opposite of what God shows us? And this is a general statement, but I think it's because we see and make judgments and think that people deserve pretty much what they get. I was taught growing up, if I work hard, things will work out for me. And that's the view in the United States. And it's even stronger statistically amongst conservative evangelicals. So if you're an American, you think that. If you're an American who is a conservative evangelical, I believe in the Bible, statistically, you think that more. You think that the poor are poor because of bad choices they made, because of the lifestyle they live, because of what they've done, because of their sinful lives. That's the perspective. It's like 90% of conservative evangelicals, I think that's the number one reason that the poor are poor. And I will tell you that that's not biblical. And the next slide shows... And we'll go into this in detail later. And I'm sorry, it's not in Spanish. 
But this is one of the most impactful stats that I learned in school. When I saw this, my heart broke. And what this shows is that when the biblically, when poverty, when the poor are discussed, when God talks about the poor, there are three different ways that He addresses the poor in these causes of poverty. You can see their personal sin, which I just described, and which we think is 9 out of 10, that's what the reason is. Is personal sin, lifestyle choices, immorality, addictions, etc. But then the Bible also talks about calamity, about when disasters happen, about just unfortunate things that happen and people are poor as a result. And then the third one is oppression, which is actually injustice when the rich take advantage of the poor. And the numbers beside those terms are the indications of how many times that occurs in Scripture. So when God talks about the poor, Trent can do the math for us, <laughs> but it's like 87% of the time when God talks about the poor, it's because of calamity, because of misfortune, or because of oppression. It's not because of personal choice. It's not because of personal sin. And so we have to change our minds about that. We have to be willing to, for our minds to be transformed by the Word, to think differently than we've been taught, to think differently than our society teaches us. So we can't be prejudiced against the poor. But then James says we also can't be prejudiced for the rich. And don't misinterpret this. It's not that we're not supposed to love the rich. It's not that we're not supposed to share the gospel with the rich. It's not that we're not supposed to, to live with them as our neighbor. But we're not supposed to show them prejudice. We're not supposed to be for the rich. And we'll talk more about that again. I think we do that personally, and I think we do that systematically and within the structure of our society. But whether we're, whether we're against the poor or whether we're for the rich, neither one of these reflect God's heart. This is not how God acts. This is not God's strategy. And I would tell you that if you love God, you have to love the poor. If you don't love the poor, you don't love God. And you may think that's a bold statement. And it is. But I believe it's a biblical statement. And I want to share, this is a, from a book, it's called um, Companion to the Ports by a guy named Viv Grigg. And he lived in the slums in Manila. He literally went into a squatter town on the side of a hill built a hut and lived amongst the poor in Manila. No running water, no, no bathrooms. And he says, I'm going to plant myself here. I'm going to relocate and I'm going to minister to these people. I'm going to build relationships with these people. I'm going to be a part of this community. And people often don't respond very well to that. They're convicted when they hear of that. And this is a quote from him. He says, people often ask, were you called to minister to the poor? And he responds and says, We are all called to minister to the poor. Such a ministry is the logical obedience of any disciple imitating the attitudes, character, and teaching of Jesus. He commands everyone to renounce all, to give to the poor, and live simply. But we would need a special call to minister primarily to the rich or middle class. 
but we would need a special call to minister primarily to the rich or middle class. For the focus of Christian ministry is good news to the poor. And so I hope that leaves you a little uncomfortable. And I hope that leaves you like, I need to understand more. Because we'll go more into that. We'll talk about that and we'll really study what does God's Word say, says, what's God's heart for the poor, and how does that need to change in us. But as we look at this passage in verse 1 through 7, I think the main point is that as we demonstrate prejudice, we're diminishing God's glory. In the first verse it says that, Show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And I don't think those words are by chance. That to glory, give glory to God is to put Him in the highest place. He deserves all the honor every time. And when we start to make distinctions, when we demonstrate prejudice, we're starting to rank people. We're starting to order people. We're starting to place ourselves above other people. We make these distinctions so I feel better about myself. And when I feel better about myself... I'm actually giving myself glory. I'm giving myself a higher place than what God has given me. And when I raise myself up, I'm diminishing God's glory. When I take glory for myself, I'm in a sense taking it away from Him. And that's pride. It's self-exalting. That's why we make distinctions. Because I feel better about myself if I can put someone else down, if I can put someone else below me. And I think we also make distinctions because of fear. We're fearful to walk with the poor. And I think it's because I need to protect myself. I'm not comfortable with them. I'm not comfortable with people that don't look like me, that don't talk like me, that don't have the same color skin as me, that don't have the same culture as me. And I'm a little bit fearful. And I think in regards to the poor, I'm fearful that I might lose my place and I might have to become poor like them or I might be oppressed like them. And I'm fearful of that. So I'm fearful on an individual level, but I'm also fearful on a more of a structural level of what might happen to me. But again, it's all about me. I have to protect myself. I have to protect my position. And I've got a couple of illustrations and I don't do this. Um, I'm not necessarily a fan of showing movie clips. But I felt like this was a good reason to. And that this was important for us. So this is a couple scenes from the movie Crash. Um, and I'll warn you up front. In one of the scenes it says, Ass. I cut out some of the other things, but I just couldn't get that. And, and God actually says ass in Scripture, and He makes an ass talk, okay? So we can say, have ass in church. And I'll probably cut that out when I... Grace doesn't want to interpret that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the reason Nita's up here is because this is something that I was trying to pull together at the last minute, of course, and Grace had no opportunity to review this, but Nita is familiar with these clips. Um, but this is Hollywood, okay? This is not real, but it's hypothetical. Just as James shared with his audience, here's a hypothetical situation, and he gave them this illustration, something that would have made sense to them, something that they might have experienced or experienced something like it. 
That's what I hope to do with this. Is He said, show no partiality as we hold our faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to be open. Am I partial? Am I prejudiced? Are we doing that? Am I doing that individually? Is we doing, are we doing that collectively as a body? And so my hope is that this is an illustration that can sort of break down some of our, restraint, our resistance to that. And we can see that here. And you might not have done these things that you hear here, but I'm sure you've thought them. Okay, and so just think through, be open as we see these two clips. The first is about uh, a man that comes in and he's trying to get coverage for his dad for health care. And he's had this conversation with this woman the night before on the phone where he let her have it because his dad can't get the medical care that he needs. He can't get the, the follow-up with the physician that he needs. And he has already spoken to her and referred to her as it, understanding that she's black and putting her down. And now he needs to go and face her and see her face to face. And it's about his position. And there's so much that's said here, and we could spend an entire day talking about all the different pieces and what he demonstrates and shows in this. But this really shows where he's elevated himself. He's talking down to her. He thinks that he is higher. He's made distinctions between himself and between her. And then the second clip is about is a woman who has been uh, carjacked just earlier, earlier that evening. And she's responding in fear. And I talked about those two things. We either respond and make this prejudice based on our, our self-elevation or we do it on our self-protection. And so this is an example of both. And I just want you guys to receive it and to consider, be open. How have I done this? How are we doing this? Does this spark anything in you? So I show that so that we realize that I have an issue. You have an issue. We have an issue. If we didn't, God wouldn't have addressed it in His Word. And I'm hesitant to, to end here. <laughs> but that's where I want to end. I want us to end right here and be like, not knowing what to do. That for us to want a solution, for us to want to be transformed, we have to understand that we have a problem. And so that's where we're going to stop. And we'll talk about solutions. I promise we'll get to solutions. But we need to consider deeply the problem. Because if it's only going to be through God's mercy and through His grace, that we would be a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-class, gospel-centered community. And I want to take time on this. This is not something extra. This is not an add-on. I, I truly believe this is the heart of God. And it's at the heart of the gospel. It's something we have to address. And so consider that this week. Consider yourself. Consider your thoughts. Consider your actions. As you interact and you base, as you interact with other people, as you think about other people, you think about situations. Am I thinking with prejudice? Am I acting with prejudice? Am I judging them? Am I making distinctions? Or am I seeing them with grace? And am I willing to share the gospel with them? Am I willing to love them and walk with them? And so let's pray. Father God, I just confess that um, even my mind right now feels disjointed, Lord, and I want to speak this so clearly, Father, and I pray that 
that your word would be made known. Lord, regardless of what I've said, Lord, that we would hear from you, that we heard from you, Father, that your words would pierce our hearts. Lord, that they would divide our consciences as your word does between marrow and joint, Father. Lord, let us put down our excuses. Let us put down our thoughts, our understanding, Lord. But as you tell us, Lord, let us receive your word. Lord, I pray that it would transform our hearts. That you would show us the deepest, darkest places of our hearts, Father, where we hold on to them. And we don't want to let you in. We don't want to let you change us. Lord, show us what we truly believe. Lord, because what we believe will be lived out, Lord. And I want to have faith in you. I want this body to have faith in you. And that our faith will be demonstrated. And that our faith would not be prejudiced. Our faith would not have any partiality. So Lord, show us our problem. Show us our issue. Lord, because only you have the remedy. Only you have the solution. Lord, only you can change us. Only you can heal us. And Lord, I pray for that. I pray for that to be demonstrated in our body. And I pray for that to be demonstrated as we love outside of our body. Lord, teach us this. Give us your heart for this. Lord, we beg you. For your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.